1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Thank you. You may be seated. So ends the reading of God's word thus far. Well, if you were to uh, hit the streets of Wilmington this afternoon and were to conduct a little impromptu survey and you were to ask the people that you encountered, hey, what is your favorite verse of Scripture? Uh, or what, is, what do you think the most well-known verse of Scripture is? And you might get answers like uh, maybe John 3.16. Most people seem to know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Beautiful scripture, the whole gospel's contained in there. Uh, but uh, maybe others would say, depending on their church background, uh, well, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Or another popular one, especially amongst gym goers, is... Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in a recent interview with theologian Bruce Ware, he said this, while John 3.16 was once the most well-known Bible verse in America, now that honor goes instead to Matthew 7 verse 1, do not judge lest you be judged. Now, I don't know if that's there's a way for sure to know if Matthew 7.1 is the most well-known verse in America, but we certainly do live in a time when truth is a matter of personal opinion. I hear people say a lot of times, some version of, well, you know, you have your truth, and I have my truth, and you need to own your truth, and I'm going to own my truth, and we can all get along just fine. And so because truth has shifted from something that was once considered by the general public something to be absolute to something that is now subjective, something that's now relative, one of the worst things a person can do is make a judgment call about someone else's actions and evaluate whether those actions are right or wrong. Judge not, we say. Now, as you imagine may imagine the Bible has a lot to say about making judgments of others. And Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verse 1, need to be read in context to understand what he is saying. But certainly, Jesus did not mean that his disciples are to make no judgments at all, that they are to make no evaluations even of others. As Christians, there is a, a right kind of judgment that we are to make and there is a wrong kind of judgment that we are to not make. And this is I, the idea that I think really gets down into 
the heart of Paul's argument and the problem that he has been faced with in addressing the Corinthian church in chapters 1 through 4. At the risk of being repetitive, Paul is arguing against a divisive spirit in the first century church there that was spurred on by cliques or fan clubs that had formed around certain spiritual leaders in the church there. So as a result, these groups had developed their idea that their leader had uh, this certain theological perspective and uh, their sense of self-importance gained from being associated with that leader was causing each group in the church to look down on the other groups in the church. The members had so solidified in their convictions that when someone else presented an alternative viewpoint, much like our culture, rather than being willing to listen, they made judgments of one another. They had been, become filled with hot air, as the saying goes. So as Paul comes to a conclusion in chapter 4 in addressing this first major issue in the church, he now wants the Corinthians to consider how they are making their judgments and to point out pastorally how their judgments are not aligned with God's wisdom. The title of this sermon, if you're taking notes, is simply Godly Judgment in the Church. Godly Judgment in the Church. And I think Paul is really going to challenge us today to consider how we make the judgments that we make. Friends, are there people in your life with whom you disagree? Everybody in this room can say yes and amen. Could be a friend, could be a family member maybe, could be a pastor of the church that you attend, could be a church member of the church that you attend. Well, Paul wants you and me to consider what we think about them. Friends, as we as a church do life together, it is absolutely necessary that we see one another with God's eyes. So many problems in our hearts, so many problems in our church or the church arise because we evaluate one another by cultural or fleshly metrics rather than Christian or biblical ones. And so Paul wants his church to make godly judgments in the way they think about him and their leaders and also one another. So here in these few short verses, Paul lays out his pastoral wisdom on godly judgments. And so we're going to talk about this in three under three headings. Paul's first going to give, in the first two verses, the criteria for godly judgment. The second and, uh, third and fourth verse, rather, He'll give the secret of godly judgment. And then in verse 5, he really gives a conclusion to the whole larger section in chapter 3 and up to that point in chapter 4. So that part we'll just call conclusion. So let's work through these together. Number one, the criteria for godly judgment, verses 1 and 2. So since the members of the church in Corinth had become arrogant regarding their favorite leaders... And verses 1 through 5, Paul uses himself and Apollos, another one of their leaders, as an example to imitate. How do I know that? We'll look at verse 6 for a second. He says, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. I'm using us as an example. 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Not to go beyond what the Scripture says. In other words, he says, if you are going to live as the people of God in Corinth, as the people of the cross in your ungodly city, you need a perspective shift in the way you think about the people in your life. You need a different mindset as you think about the different groups of people that God places around you. And since we men are responsible to teach you the wisdom of God, we want you to follow our lead. So in verses 1 and 2, to help them to, to see one another with God's eyes, he lays out some basic criteria or principles that this church needs to follow as they think about others. In verse 1, he starts talking about them as the leaders. Paul is a leader in the church. He's their apostle. Of course, Apollos, we learned the last couple weeks, uh, was a, a, a popular teacher there. He wasn't in Corinth at the time of the writing of this letter. Of course, there were other people that had passed through, like Peter, the apostle Peter, and then possibly, of course, there were other leaders as well. He says in verse 1, Concerning us leaders, think of us as Christ's servants, entrusted with the mysteries of God. Now, these words that Paul uses here for servant and steward are pregnant with meaning. They describe servants in a first century Greek household who were usually slaves or hired hands. A steward was a servant, a word that indicates his low position, but he was a servant to whom the master of a home delegated his authority. That means that that servant was accountable only to the master of the home. He was answerable only to the master of the home for the way that he discharged his duties. So Paul says, a minister is a servant. Church leaders are servants before they are anything else. They are there to serve. But he is a servant of Christ. He is called by and entrusted by Christ to carefully steward or manage, if you like, or look after the mysteries of God, which as we've been seeing, is the word of the crucified and risen Christ. So in this connection, verse 2, God requires His stewards to be faithful to His charge. In other words, in everything that He does, the minister is to promote the gospel by both word and example, in both public and in private, in the way that he speaks and in the way that he acts. Now, of course, in a very real sense, all Christians have that same charge. All Christians are called to hold forth the gospel of life in all that we do. But in the words of D.A. Carson in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, he says, Christian leadership demands a focus of the kinds of characteristics and virtues that ought to be present in Christians everywhere. That is precisely what makes it possible for Christian leaders to serve as models as well as teachers in the church of God. Christian ministers are expressly charged by God to help church members live meaningful lives in Jesus' name. And so much of this is done by example. So much more, as we talk about with our kids, is caught rather than taught. This is 
been my experience and the Bean family's experience in our time in preparing for church planting, especially when we were a part of Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville and Crossway Community Church in Charlotte. Since our first introduction into Sovereign Grace in 2015, and whatever state we've lived in, we've watched our pastors model this faithfulness to the gospel in both public and in private. You know, in one sense, it's easy to model the gospel in the pulpit. It's easy to be faithful to the text of Scripture and honor the Lord, so to speak, from the pulpit in the way that we teach. It's easy to teach the gospel in one sense. And we certainly experienced uh, this in our time in these different churches. But I think what taught us the greatest lessons about faithful servanthood were in those relaxed times that we sat around listening, observing, talking with the men and the ladies that were charged with preparing us. We saw those families, we saw those pastors love their wives well. We saw their wives respect them well. We saw them raise up and train and pay attention to and love their children well. And they loved us well. They gave time to us without reservation. I remember uh, sitting at one time, we used to have lunch with some of the pastors and we were sitting around one day, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but uh, this particular pastor uh, was reflecting on what Jesus did for him in dying for his sins and rising again so that he could become a child of God. And as he sat there, he closed his eyes, and he stopped speaking, and I saw tears begin to stream down this man's face as he considered the mercy of God toward him. And I remember that moment because I remember praying, Lord, give me that kind of gratitude for what you've done for me. Give me that kind of heart. Give me that kind of affection for you. A steward is one who is charged by God to promote the gospel in both word and deed. But to do so, friends, he or she needs to promote the gospel first in their own hearts. I speak this especially to the men. Some of you men in this church may become pastors someday. Many of you will not. Some of you may be teachers. Some of you will not. Some of you are or will be husbands and fathers most of us are employees of someone. Friends, I want to tell you, men, I want to tell you, people will see Christ most clearly in you if you see Christ clearly in your own heart. You don't have to go out and pretend to act like Jesus when you know Him as your friend, when you know Him as your brother and private. Because guys, that's what faithfulness looks like. That's what it means to be faithful ministers. And this is how we ought to judge the spiritual leadership that God places over us. The, 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 the men that are in charge are just servants. The men that are, that are over this church are men over this church in the Lord. We're under shepherds of the chief shepherd. Friends, don't put men on a pedestal. Don't put men on a pedestal. 
But don't create the opposite error of putting a, a, a puppet in the pulpit. You put, you put men on a pedestal, you know what's going to happen? They're going to let you down. I and Aaron and Jim, we're going to let you down. We're going to sin against you. We won't do it on purpose, hopefully, but we will mess up. And if you put a puppet in the pulpit, you have someone there because they are your servant, not Christ's servant. And his value will be determined by how well he serves you, not by how well he serves Christ. Don't, 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 don't have pedestal ministers in your heart. Don't have puppet ministers in your heart. But I think the natural application we can take from this is this is also how we ought to evaluate one another though, isn't it? I, I fear too often that we, we judge strictly by things that we can see by appearance, by how well-spoken a person is or by how well-dressed a person is or by how well they do this, or by how well they do that, how they use their gifts, how they carry themselves. But friends, if you are a Christian, or if they are a Christian, they only have one master. And faithfulness to Him and to His Word, guess what? It might look different for them than what faithfulness looks like to you and to me. I say that. Because they may not be on the same level of spirituality chart as you and I are. But get this. In one sense, it doesn't matter. Because our fellow Christians are not answerable to us. They are answerable to the Lord. Paul would later write in Romans 14 and verse 4, I'll put this on the screen for you. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before he, his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Dear ones, are the people in our lives seeking by grace to be faithful wherever God places them? You know the answer to that question? Maybe. But we don't know. For pastors, for our pastors, are they, according to our estimation, being faithful to Jesus and the way they teach and the way they model Christ? If yes, then temperament and charisma and leadership style are secondary issues. And don't throw those out. Those can be important. But let them carry very little weight in our judgments. For one another, all things are ours, Paul said in chapter 3, verse 22. But this is because we belong, each of us, to Christ. And guess what? Even the most immature Christian will be upheld by Jesus on the last day for the Lord is able to make him stand. Oh, correction's going to be necessary sometimes. And we're going to get into some pretty heavy correction that Paul needed to correct this church in. But for now, that man, that woman, is Christ's servant, not ours. So let's be careful in our judgment. 
So some simple criteria for sound judgment. Are they faithful to Christ? That question must inform our judgment. Number two, the secret to godly judgment. Verses three and four. Having shown the Corinthians the the baseline approach to their evaluation of their leaders and to each other, Paul now turns to share with the Corinthians the criteria he uses to judge himself. Now the context here, just to give you a little context, evidently some members of the church in Corinth had been judging Paul. Some of them had made decisions about Paul, or presumably some of the other leaders there, not based on the criteria that Paul sets forth in verses 1 and 2. They've pronounced judgment on their leaders, to use the wording of verse 5, on the basis of human wisdom. How well those men, those preachers, those leaders appeal to the flesh. How good they can teach. How well they can entertain them and not on their faithfulness to the gospel. Not on their faithfulness to scripture. But, says Paul, even if you have judged me rightly, (laughs) he says it actually makes no no difference to me at all. It makes little difference to me what you think of me. Why? Because in truth, ultimately, the Christian minister does not stand on the court of public opinion. He is answerable only to the righteous judge who is Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, the church in Corinth, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. I don't know if there's sin in me. I don't think there's sin in me in this regard. But that doesn't left me off the, leave me, get me off the hook. It's the Lord who judges me. Now right away our flesh hears Paul's words and we, we think he's being a bit of a jerk, don't we? Sounds like Paul saying, I don't give a rip what you think about me. I'm going to go on. I'm going to be my own apostle. I don't care what you think about me. You can't evaluate me. I'm just going to move on. You're not in my position. Don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. Not what he's saying at all. You see, Paul is so convinced of what he has just said in verse 1, that his calling as an apostle is a charge and a trust of the highest order from the very top down, that the effectiveness of his ministry, because it is from the Lord, can only really be judged by the Lord. If it is Christ's gospel that he's been entrusted with, then it's got to be Christ that judges his faithfulness to it. If a king were to commission an artist to paint his portrait... Don't you think something would be a little odd if he called in one of the commoners to come into the court and to look at the portrait and to tell him what he thought about it? Yeah, it would be odd. No, the king is going to judge the quality of that artist's work. Judgment belongs to the king. Paul is saying the same thing of his work for Christ. It is the Lord who judges or better, examines me now. And verse 5, when he returns, he will give the verdict as to the faithfulness with which I discharged my duties. In the words of one scholar. Now friends, whether you're a minister or not, 
These are really hard verses to get hold of in our practical lives. It is very difficult. Rare is the day that we get through that thing, get through our waking hours without being concerned about the opinions of others. Without getting through that day being concerned about what we think about our work. Isn't that true? And so, we're concerned with what you think and what you think and what, what I think. And so, we're worried about appearances and we're, we're trying to protect ourselves. And we're not thinking at all about the praise of the king. And so, when we go to sleep at night, we toss and we turn and we think about, what a fool I was that I said that. Why in the world did he or she do or say that? I'm so humiliated. I'm so embarrassed. Or we look in the mirror and we hate what we see. So our frustration or even anger, our humiliation robs us of sleep. It robs us of life. It robs us of joy. Tim Keller, he's a pastor I listen to quite a lot, and uh, he wrote this little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. You may have read it or heard of it before. It's a very short book. You can read it in less than 30 minutes. I'm going to actually give a copy away at the end to one of you. But in it, he writes about Paul's words here in chapter 4, and it's so good. I just wanted to read a little excerpt to you as he gives some more examples. He says this, Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor, nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition, nor on the other hand is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see and lingers a few extra seconds, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise? Just to love the fact that it was done? For it not to matter whether it is their success or your success, not to care if they did it or you did it, you are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourselves because you are just so happy to see it. You will probably say that you do not know anybody like that. But this is the possibility for you and me if we keep on going where Paul is going. I can start to enjoy things that are not about me. My work is not about me. My skating is not about me. My romance is not about me. My dating is not about me. I can actually enjoy things for what they are. They are not just for my resume. They are not just to look good on my college or job application. They are not just a way of filling up the emptiness. Who wouldn't want that? Now, friends, at the risk of sounding idealistic, we can have this if we listen to Paul's secret. How can Paul dare to say that he doesn't even judge himself? 
Well, this is because he has a secret. You know what that is? Paul has stopped connecting his identity to his failures and to his successes. He has stopped connecting his identity to his sins, to his failures. Why? Because Paul knows that he has already been judged in the body of his crucified Lord. So his is the only opinion that matters. Does Paul have opinions? Absolutely. Does he still sin? Sure. Does he have a clear conscience? Yes, right here. But he says in verse 4, so what? I don't even know my own heart. But I do know that my good days don't make me more acceptable to God. And my worst days don't banish me from His presence. The Lord examines me because He has already determined my acceptability in His sight based upon the works, the merits of another, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Friends, if our identity is wrapped up in our actions, we will always be anxious and irritated because guess what? The standard that we've set for ourselves is way too high a bar to reach. The standards we put out for other people to reach, they ain't going to reach it either. But there is one who has met the standard. There is one who reached the bar, and it was God's standard, and God's standard is perfection. God's standard is way higher than our bar. Jesus was sinless. Never once did he fail to meet God's standard. And listen, he did this for everyone who will stop trusting in themselves and throw their whole hope in Jesus and on his work for them. He did that for you if you will accept him. This is why Paul can say to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Every sin I committed against him in persecuting the church and every sin I did commit today and will commit later and will commit tomorrow was punished in his body and there is therefore now no condemnation to me. Therefore, it's Today it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Every deed I do is made acceptable to God because Christ lived a perfect life of obedience to God that I failed and still fail to live. So the life that I now live in the body, I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, the way that we deal with hankering worry about the approval of others is not to ask, as modern psychology teaches you, who cares what they think? You ever given that advice to someone who's discouraged? I don't worry about what they think. What matters is what you think. Paul says, "Eh." even what I think doesn't matter. It is the Lord who judges me. And I am justified, I am forgiven, I am clean. I know that sounds too good to be true, 
I know that sounds idealistic to maybe some of you, but Jesus came, listen, Jesus came to liberate us from the bondage, the craving, the need of the approval of others. He came to set you free to enjoy the world that he has given to you. All things are yours in Christ, but you can only enjoy those things, brothers and sisters, when you see that he is your judge, not yourself. That's Paul's secret. Last, the conclusion. He comes to verse 5. He's concluding everything he said in chapter 3 and pulling this together, and then next week he'll finish off his argument. We know Paul's a long run-on sentence guy, so we've got to take it in stride. Verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, I must hurry along. Bear in mind, this is a letter to Christians. Paul is writing to a church. Paul is saying, and do not... Do not pronounce judgment before the appointed time. Paul is not saying to the church, as I said earlier, that they ought not to make judgments at all. Chapter 5, which is coming next, chapter 6, Paul tells them in different ways they are to make judgments. There are different kinds of judgments. They concern sin. They concern the gospel being threatened in the church. But here... Here, he's talking about a kind of judgment that is related just to everyday life. It's related to the temptations and the fears that we have. The decisions that we make about people, about things, about situations. And Paul's saying that there's going to come a day when Jesus returns. And on that day, all the works that you and I do are going to be placed on scales. And like a morning sunrise that rolls back the cover of darkness over the land, the effectiveness of my ministry and my faithfulness to God and your ministry and your faithfulness to God and our faithfulness to God, which is now hidden, will be uncovered. Every hidden Motive that we had in every situation, every secret word spoken, every way where we were deceived or not deceived, every failure to grasp the truth of the gospel or grasp of the gospel, every prayer we prayed, every quiet act of faith, everything will be shown for what it really was. And to refer back to chapter 2, Everything that we've built with wood, hay, and straw, everything that we build for our own glory will be burned up and we won't receive reward for that. But everything that we built with gold and silver and precious stones, everything we did for the name of Jesus in this world will be shown to be pure. Then each one, get this, each one will be praised by God. Each one will receive the well done of the Lord. So Paul says, guys, save it for the judge. I love how the the message puts it. 
Don't get ahead of the master and jump to conclusions with your judgments before all the evidence is in. When he comes, he will bring out in the open and place in evidence all kinds of things we never even dreamed of, inner motives and purposes and prayers. Only then will any one of us get to hear the well done of God. Friends, what kind of a kingdom is this? We are saved on the merits of Jesus alone. And yet when we stand before God, we will receive the applause of heaven for what He did. Does that make no sense to any of us? It makes no sense to me. Everything I've ever tried to achieve, I've had to earn. Paul says, you can't earn this, bro. Each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. And you know what else is crazy? The same for those that we judge in our hearts. They will also receive his commendation because all things will be brought into the light. And everyone who is in Christ will receive not condemnation, but commendation. I've shared before with you that one of my favorite dead guys is John Newton. I made the practice in recent years to read his letters devotionally, mainly because, like few others, he helps me love Jesus more. Some time ago, I shared with you a portion of a letter that he wrote to a fellow minister. I'd like to share it with you again. The context of the letter went like this. His friend was embroiled in a public debate with another minister. And Newton's friend, according to Newton, had the upper hand. He, had the, the, he was on the side of truth. And his friend was going to write an open letter to the man that he was debating. But Newton got hold of his friend first. And he wrote him a letter because he didn't want him to regret his actions. Newton said, I would have you be more than a conqueror and a triumph not only over your adversary, but over yourself. And one cannot help but think of Paul's heart for the church in Corinth as he writes this letter. This is a portion of what Newton wrote. We'll put it on the screen for you, and then we'll close. He says, as to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you are preparing an answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer and to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, 
view him personally as a kindred soul with, with, which, with whom you will be happy in Jesus forever. Dear ones, as we consider the people with whom we oppose, let us behold the grace and mercy and patience of the Lord. Two fast words of application I'll draw from this and I'll pray. Have we prayed for them? Before we make judgments of a wayward brother or sister, and especially before we approach them, have we approached God? first. We can't help but feel mercy toward others when we see our own need for mercy. Only by reflecting on the much forgiveness we need ourselves can we in the right frame of spirit go to them. So friends, we must pray before we speak. We must see before we say. Secondly, a day is coming. And it'll be a day that all that is now in darkness, all that darkness now hides, will be a day of revelation. And everyone's motives, everyone's intents will be dispelled and exposed. And the light of God's glory, listen, will shine on our fellow brothers and sisters. <laughs> not to bring shame, not to expose, but to commend, to applaud to reward. And we will spend side by side for eternity, forever, being happy in Jesus. Let's pray together and then we'll sing of this great mercy of God to us. Lord, I believe that if we as your people thought more about the day coming rather than today, we would view things so differently as we live out this journey of faith. Jesus, you promised that you would come back in the way that you came way that you ascended. And every eye will see you and every person will bow their knee and some will scream in terror and others will rejoice at the time of their suffering is over. But Lord, when we spend that first second with you, we will also be alongside our dear brothers and sisters in this church and side by side with all of those we once walked with and with those that we will walk with. Father, we tremble at the thought that there is people that we have sinned against in our hearts that we have not made things right with here on earth. I pray, Lord, that it as a result of hearing Paul's words, that we would consider one another 
And that, Lord, if repentance must be made, let us repent. If confession must be given, let us confess. But if not, dear Lord, let us leave this place more happy in you because we know we have already been judged in our Savior. Amen.